I want to take my text this morning from Psalm 73 and verse 17. Psalm 73, verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. That's my subject this morning. We've been to this psalm many times before. This is a psalm written by Asaph. Asaph was the chief singer appointed by David, according to 1 Chronicles chapter 6. He was the head song leader in the temple or the tabernacle. And Asaph is attributed with writing Psalm 50 and Psalms 73 through 83. Here in this psalm, Asaph is struggling. He's struggling with the goodness of God. He begins like this in verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, even as are of such as a clean heart. But as for me, the word truly is emphatic, suggesting that Asaph was not so sure at one time about the goodness of God. That's why he contrasted it. But as for me, what about you, Asaph? He doubted something about the goodness of God. He doubted something about what it means to have a clean heart. And when he comes through the experience of Psalm 73 and records, beginning in verse 17, he emerges with emphasis, truly, surely God is good to Israel, even such as are of a clean heart. What was a struggle as it relates to God's goodness and a clean heart? Verse 3, but as for me, I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The word prosperity is shalom, which means welfare, well-being. Asaph struggled with the goodness of God in his own pursuit of holiness. His struggle was something like this in verse 13. I have been cleansing my heart. I have been washing my hands in innocency, which means from guilt, which we take that to mean he truly was on the pathway of holiness and purity. He truly was pursuing purity. But why was he doing it? 4, verse 14. I am plagued all the day long and chastened every morning. If God is good to Israel and good to those that have a clean heart, and I'm pursuing a clean heart, why am I plagued and not prospering? Asaph has bought into and in the grip of his own version of the prosperity gospel. What is the prosperity gospel? Well, it's it's a version of approaching God that says, God, I'm going to cleanse, I'm going to behave, I'm going to do what's right, and the result is I'm going to be advanced. I'm going to prosper. Now, there's one facet of the prosperity gospel that I'm not so concerned about whether or not you and I would succumb to it. It's the version that says, serve God and be really rich. I just received a report recently from some college students who were being given a devotion by a man who right out of the, right out of the gate, he said, serve God and be rich. And they quickly picked up on that prosperity gospel. But there's another version that's far more subtle and dangerous and tempting. It's the version that says, serve God and you'll be blessed. What's wrong with that? Nothing. In fact, the word blessing is used in a similar manner in Scripture. 
The problem is, is we think we'll bring our behavior to God, we'll bring our purity to God, we'll bring our cleansing and our, our washing to God, and the result is we will be blessed. See, it's how we define that blessing, what we're looking for in the blessing that can make it a prosperity gospel or not. Kate Bowler, who is a self-professed scholar of the prosperity gospel, she spent years of research visiting as many megachurches that preach that gospel as she could find, talking to people in the pulpit and the pew. Says, It is true that the prosperity gospel encourages people, especially its leaders, to revel in private jets and multi-million dollar homes as evidence of God's love. But I sensed a different kind of yearning, one that wasn't entirely materialistic. Believers wanted an escape from poverty, failing health, and the feeling that their lives were leaky buckets. Some people wanted Bentleys, but more wanted relief from the wounds of their past and the pain of their present. People wanted salvation from bleak medical diagnoses. They wanted to see God rescue their broken teenagers or their misfiring marriages. They wanted talisman to ward off the things that go bump in the night. They wanted an iota of power over the things that ripped their lives apart at the seams. What they wanted was reassurance. That if they prayed, believed, and lived righteously, they would be rewarded with some measure of comfort. Beloved, that's the version that I'm far more concerned with than the version that serve God and get really wealthy and rich because they're both prosperity gospels. This author writes, it took cancer to show me I was in the grip of the prosperity gospel. Now, why is that? Because if you're serving God for the blessing, what happens when the blessing's gone? You stop serving. You stop praying. You stop going to church. You stop discipling. You stop fellowship. Why? Because it's vain, Asaph says. It's just not worth it. I go to church. I wash my hands. I hear sermon after sermon. I go on the internet and hear sermons. I feel like I'm on the pathway of holiness. I want to know God's will. And what does it get me? Emptiness. Vanity. Asaph says, it's like I'm always on a dead-end street. It's like the waiter at the local restaurant. What happens when he stops getting a paycheck? The service stops. Perhaps the best way we can know we're in the grip of the prosperity gospel is when we're gripped by a loss of blessing as we define it, right? There's a way we define blessing. Then when that blessing's gone, what happens? The service is gone. Asaph's in a deep struggle. Beginning in verse 4, he begins to unpack what he saw. There is no bands in their death. Their, their strength is firm. They have good health, by and large. <clears throat> Do you ever see people like that? He would say they're not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride compasses them like a chain. You ever seen a guy with a thick gold necklace around his neck? They just wear pride like a chain. 
head up, chest out, and violence covers them like it's a garment. Do you see that in our society? And yet they just move on, advancing and prospering. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than they could wish. They are corrupt. They speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. Their mouth is set against heaven. Their blasphemy reaches into the clouds, into God's throne room, and their tongue walks through the earth with absolute arrogance. And what's the upshot? These are the ungodly that prosper in the world. Asaph struggled. If I'm cleansing, if I'm serving, if I'm hearing sermons, if I'm discipling, if I'm praying, if I'm reading, why does it not get me the prosperity that I'm after? Well, Asaph in verse 14 or 15 rather, he he thought about talking to someone about it in verse 15, but he said, I should offend the children, your children. In other words, if he he complained out loud, it may cause somebody else to stumble. So he thought to know this in his own mind. He wrestled, he wrestled, and it was just too painful. He got nowhere, verse 17, until he went into the sanctuary of God. So let's look at four things that Asaph experienced through this psalm, that Asaph experienced as it relates to the rescuing grace of God. God's grace is going to come rescue Asaph in four ways. Verse 17, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Now, in New Testament language, we would say, Asaph experienced rescue when he went to church. <clears throat> now, the sanctuary here is plural. <clears throat> and plural is pointing to the temple and all that is at the temple of the tabernacle. Inside the temple, outside the temple, in the gate, in the sanctuary, all that was going on, Asaph is pointing at his, what he saw there when he went, what he understood when he went to the temple of God. Now, in the New Testament, we don't have a temple. We don't have ornate buildings. We worship in this building. This is not the sanctuary. Technically, is it? Although we call it that. You're the sanctuary. You are the temple of God, which the Holy Spirit indwells. And God is making you a holy habitation through the Spirit. You are His temple. You are His dwelling place. And when we gather together for church, we should be experiencing understanding. And God uses understanding again and again and again to rescue us by His grace. Now what's interesting is the first thing he understood is not his own end. That's implied, isn't it? If he understands the end of the ungodly, the implication is he understands something about his own end. But that's not first. How would this go over in 21st century Christianity? He understood the end of the wicked. What is it? Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Now when Asaph said his feet were almost gone, his steps were well nigh slipped, to slip means to turn aside from God. The danger of his version of the prosperity gospel is that it was causing him to turn aside from God, not to God. And that's our danger today. So Asaph understands that God has set them in slippery places. 
God casteth them down into destruction. Verse 19, how are they brought into desolation as in a moment? Desolation is wasteland desolation. Emptiness. They are utterly consumed with terrors. Utterly consumed means completely, totally, finally consumed with calamity. Now, this could point to temporal calamity, which God certainly does, but since there are no bands in their death and their strength is firm, when does the calamity come? In eternal destruction. Asaph, why would you envy the prosperity of people who are on a slippery slope headed for destruction? Isn't that folly and madness? Why would we envy people who are going to be destroyed forever. Do you understand this, young man and young lady? Has God given you understanding that when you see all this prosperity, and when you see them just advancing in their wickedness, and their oppression, and their cruelty, and their corruption, from government down to citizen, do you understand the end of the ungodly is utter, complete ruin forever. Look at this imagery in verse 20. As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when you awake, which suggests what? Well, it looks like God is asleep. He's just doing nothing. One day, he will awaken. What will he do? He will despise their image. Now mark this down. He does not despise their prosperity. That is very important. Nor does he despise yours if you have it. Prosperity is not the problem. It's they're wicked. What is their wickedness that relates to their prosperity? It's their image. The word image means phantom or semblance. Semblance means something that gives the appearance of the form of something but is not real. It's like a dream when one awakens. You can awake from a dream in one of two ways. You can wake up and be glad that it never happened. You know, you're falling off a building and before you hit the ground, or nightmare, somebody's chasing you with a knife or whatever, and you wake up, you're like, whew, I am so glad that's not true. That's not the kind Asaph's talking about. It's waking up from a dream that was wonderful, glorious. Everything was going right. And you wake up and realize it was an image, it was a semblance, it was a phantom, it's not real. Now when God awakes and despises their shadow, their dream, what was the appearance of their dream that God despised? Why do you like your good dream? If we could boil down your good dreams to one issue, it would be this. It made you happy. God despises the source of their happiness, which is not God. It's their prosperity. The problem is not the prosperity. It's their wicked hearts. And God will destroy them because they rejected His glory for created glories that are just phantoms. Young man and young woman, can you not see it's but a dream that one day you will have to awaken from? When God awakes... He will despise every person 
with this shadowy dream. Whether it's prosperity or whatever, dream you're chasing when it's not God in Christ. Now, how does this help Asaph? You think that's a little bit shaky. It's, it's a little deep and dark, some people would say, that, that God's going to help me to understand something about his wrath toward the wicked. And here's how it helps. Asaph, if you keep going down the road of this dream and you live in the shadow like the wicked do, or you live on the broad road that leads to destruction, and that's where you make your bed, and that's where your home is, and that's what you turn away from God to be and do for your life, at the end of the road, Asaph, you will be destroyed. And beloved, so will I. Do you think that warning can't touch me? Do you think I'm safe no matter how I live? Do you think I can depart from God and live according to my own pleasures, my own dreams, and my own happiness, and God's just going to say, that's okay? No, our assurance of a clean heart is on the pathway of holiness for which Asaph is contemplating a departure. I almost turned from God. And I said, what's the point? I'll just go live like the wicked. So God brought him into the sanctuary, and there he understood their end, which kept him focused on his end. My friend, the the warnings of Bible are designed for God's children's good, to keep us safely in God's backyard. And so if we're going to walk out and just start living like the wicked, you need to be awakened to the fact that your dream bubble is going to crash one day. And so what happens? He understands. What a good understanding. How many churches in America perhaps are not even giving this understanding? How did Asaph get this understanding? He heard it and he saw it at the tabernacle. He heard it through the law. Right? Malachi 2.7 says, The priest's lips should keep knowledge and they, the people, should seek knowledge at his mouth because he's the messenger of the Lord. So the priests were supposed to unpack the law so that they had an understanding of what it meant to depart from God. Psalm 119 verse 130 says this, Thy words, the entrance of thy words give light. They give understanding to the simple. Now the word entrance means to open and unfold. So when he went to the sanctuary, somebody presumably a priest, he heard open and unfold the words of God. How did they enter Asaph? Not by a feeling or not by an experience. So much of our culture of Christianity is all about how we feel. Now that's important. We know that in the Bible, isn't it? But it goes through the understanding. It doesn't affect the emotions first and the experience first and then rise up to the level of understanding. It goes from the understanding down to the heart. So what do we do in our culture? We ramp up praise and worship and we dumb down preaching. So that when people talk about how great worship is, it's always about praise and worship and very seldom about the understanding that God gave them in the opening the unfolding, the entrance of God's words. As Paul says in Acts 17, or Luke records, that he 
opening and alleging from the Old Testament scriptures that Christ was the Messiah. Opening, taking the scripture, opening, unfolding, alleging. People understood how? By the grace of God, opening the eyes of their understanding. See, we live in a world that dumbs down understanding altogether. We live in a world of smart devices and smartphone, and frankly, I, I like those devices. But you know what? They kind of make you dumb. You just look at images, 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 and you don't have to think. They do the thinking for you. Not bad, not evil, just dumbs us down. So we come to the house of God, and we're like, well, this is too much thinking for me. I, you know, do a play. Give me some images. Show me a movie. But don't ask me to think. It was through understanding in the sanctuary that he understood therein. He heard something about God's ways, but he saw something also. What did he see? He saw innocent animals being slaughtered. What did that communicate? God hates sin. He hates my sin. He hates your sin. How much does he hate it? He slaughtered symbolically. Animal after animal after animal. man told me one time he tried to calculate the gallons of blood that were slaughtered. He just had to quit in the Old Testament. Just mind-boggling. How does God hate sin? He slaughtered his son. Now, Asaph only saw that through the symbolism. One would come that I would find understanding. That he, he forgave me. God loves me. And how does he love Asaph? He rescues Asaph by his sovereign grace. This is rescuing grace. He brings him into the sanctuary. He shows him his hatred for sin. And in the same look, he shows him his love for the sinner through Christ. Beloved, if we don't want to look at the wrath of God, then close your eyes to the gospel. It's amazing how people say, well, don't talk to me about wrath of God. Well, then we can't talk about the gospel because there his wrath is put on display in the execution of his own son. Why? To declare, I say this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth on Jesus. So God honors his name, pours out his wrath on the substitute, so that Asaph can live, and so that I can live. So Asaph understands at their end, but through the symbolism of the sacrifices, which we see the end of those shadows and types today, Christ we see God's love also when we see His wrath poured out. And through the love of God, we understand their end. We understand our end. Through the sacrifice of Christ, God has redeemed us. And because of that sacrifice, what happens? Oh, love that will not let me go. Asaph will not be let go. And so what does God do? He works through the sanctuary to have understanding that brings him back by the grace of God out of the grip of the prosperity gospel that he had fallen prey to, right? Secondly, beginning in verse 21, Thus my heart was grieved and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually always still with you. Why is he still with God and how is he still with him? 
Well, what Asaph did, he just looked at the scene and said, you know what, I get it, I get it, you know. I'll just turn back to God and away from it. Now the answer to why is in verse 23. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. That's why Asaph is still with God. And if you're still with God, beloved, that's why. The right hand of His rescuing grace, which is the right hand of His righteousness, gripped Asaph. Where? In the sanctuary. Through understanding, he was rescued. That's God's rescuing grace. Isn't that amazing? I picture a man at the beach who's, who's gone down under the waves and the undertow is so strong he's being, he's being swept out to sea. Or rather, Asaph seems to indicate he just started swimming out to sea. I just almost turned aside. Just swimming out to sea. And here comes this mighty grip, this mighty hand reaching through the waters and grabs Asaph's hand and rescues him back to the safety of shore. Where? In the sanctuary. How? Through understanding. Why? God's right hand of righteousness is why Asaph, when we read this psalm, was not a goner. Beloved, that's our comfort. What if God said, uh, I'm going to rescue you according to the right hand of your righteousness? That's not good. That won't work this week, will it? You see, our righteousness in Christ is an imputed righteousness. So, when you grow in holiness, it doesn't change. But like Asaph, when you decrease, what happened? It doesn't change. Because you're attached to Jesus through faith. And because of your attachment, it wouldn't be right for God to let you go. It wouldn't be righteous. Because you're connected to the glory of His Son's cross. So God cannot, He will not let you go. That's why Asaph could say, Nevertheless, I am still with God. Why? Because God held me by His right hand. And that's why you still are today. Now here's the question we want to answer and be sure about. How did God grasp His right hand? Well, again, look at Asaph's foolishness. Verse 21, Thus was my heart grieved, and I was pricked in my reign. So foolish was I and ignorant, I was as a beast before thee. So Asaph explained when he almost departed from God, it was through grief which means bitterness. He was embittered. He he was pricked like a sword going through the the kidney. It just was anger and and bitterness. And he was had a complaint, he thought. In this condition, he said, I was foolish and ignorant. I was as a beast before God, nevertheless. A beast operates according to instinct. Instinct is a fixed, typical pattern an animal has that just reacts and responds to stimulus. What is your typical beast-like response that happens regularly? The Bible calls it sin. Asaph is saying, this was my sin. I was bitter. I was angry. And I was foolish. Sin makes us foolish. It makes us like a, a beast, brutish. 
In two ways, sin made Asaph like a beast. First, it turned him in on himself towards self-righteousness. Have you ever done that? Lord, I served you. Why is this happening? Which means what? I served you. I deserve better than this. I brought you my service. I brought you my attendance. I brought you my prayers. Why is this happening? That's self-righteousness. You're expecting a payoff for your piety, and it didn't happen, so you're just bitter like Asaph. You ever been there? See, sin makes us fools because it turns us to self, and then we become self-righteous. When Asaph is restored by grace in verse 28, he says, I will put my trust in the Lord God. See, a pure heart produces love, not self-centeredness. When you're truly cleansing your heart by faith, God working through you, it produces a life of love. Why? Because the end of the commandment is love out of a pure heart. And of a good conscience and faith unfeigned, which is real faith. Real faith from a pure heart produces love. What's being produced here? Self-love. God, I've been bringing this to you for 30 years now, and what has it got me? That's self-righteous. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him, but he that cometh to God must believe that He is and a rewarder of them that diligently seek prosperity. No, that's the problem. What is Asaph after? He's after the blessing. He's after the prosperity. So he brings his behavior to God, believing that God is not. And he needs a little help along the way. So I'm going to serve him. I'm going to do what he wants. I'm going to do what he asks. And God will be for me like one of those newfangled Coke machines, fountain machines, where there's like 500 flavors you can choose. You can add lemon, blueberry, lime, anything you want to Coke. Just dial it in and get what you want. God, that's what you are to me. But when He is everything, He's source, then the reward that you're seeking is Him. And that's the danger of any version of the prosperity gospel. It's not about Him. It's just about the life He can give you. And everybody knows that God has the power to give you things. Even the unbeliever knows that. So we come in with our service, we come with our worship, and we leave thinking, all right, I'm ready. So Asaph is bitter. The next way Asaph is foolish is he's self-centered. Why is he so bitter? Why is he so angry? Well, because of the way you're treating me, what you're not doing for me, God. Bitterness and unrighteous anger is always rooted in self. Because I don't like what you said to me. I don't like what you did to me. And I certainly don't like that you're not filling my coffer with treasure. It's all about me. My service, my behavior, my obedience, all that I do in worship of God is all about me. Sin makes us like a beast before God. Anybody struggle with that? Now here's what we say, oh, how good is God to heritage. How gracious He is to us. We struggle just like Asaph. And we can say, nevertheless, I was a beast last week. I am still with God. Why? You've held me 
by your right hand. Now how, since Asaph says, I was like a beast, I'm still with God, his right hand came and rescued me, how did he rescue him from foolishness, his bitterness, his anger, his complaining, and his being beast-like? Now there's some irony here. In verse 13, he said, Verily I had cleansed my heart in vain. The word vain should be attached to both the cleansing of the heart and the washing of the hands in innocency. Why is it vain and empty? Because I'm plagued all the day long. I'm chastened every morning. Chastened. That is very ironic. Because the way God's right hand comes in and rescues Asaph is chastening every morning. And he despises it. Do you? The very reason he's not prospering is because God is training his child. Because maybe if Asaph does reach the mother load, he may then depart from God. And maybe you would too. God maketh rich, maketh poor. You work hard as you can, you may be rich. You work hard as you can, you may be poor. Because God makes both. What's your complaint? He's training his children. So the right hand of God comes to Asaph and grabs him with rebuke and correction. Psalm 37, verse 17. The arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholdeth the upright, the righteous. Why would you envy people who's going to be broken? Contrast, God is grasping. The word uphold means to grasp. He's holding the righteous. How is he holding them? He knoweth the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. So God's upholding Asaph. He's upholding you by knowing your days. What does that mean? It means to regard and give attention to every day of your life. What kind of attention did God give? Only saving attention to his children. It's the kind of attention a father gives to a son. What's that? He chastens you morning by morning so that your inheritance will be forever. What does that mean? Because He's going to keep you from a total and final departure through chastisement. So the very thing Asaph is complaining against is the right hand of God coming to rescue him. Isn't that ironic? And how often do I and you do the same thing? The very thing God has brought into your life, like a father chasing his son... We are angry, we are bitter, which means what? We've bought into the grip of a prosperity gospel, right? Why is this happening to me? I have done right, I have prayed, I have gone to church, and where has it gotten me? I'm an angry, bitter person. See, Asaph has forgotten the exhortation before it was written. Well, it was written in Proverbs 3. You've forgotten the exhortation that speaketh unto you as children, my son. My daughter, don't despise the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of Him. God's chastening, what's He do? He rebukes us like a father or son. We despise it, which means think little of it, have no regard for it. What happens to Asaph? He faints, or his feet slip, and he turns away from the service of God. Why? Because it's just a little comfort, just a little something, Lord. I mean, surely my service should get something. I am a bitter man, and I'm angry, and I'm complaining because I've forgotten 
For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son he receives. If you endure chastening, whereof all are partakers, God is dealing with you as with children. So God the Father is going to chasten how many of his children? All of them. How do you know God is dealing with you as a child of his? Not just when you're chastened, when you endure the spanking of your father. Asaph, you're going to depart from the living God out of an evil heart of unbelief. You have no assurance that God is dealing with you as a son because you're not enduring the chastening. You see just how the passage makes a difference. I understand now. It's not he's trying to harm me. He loves me and in his love he's training me. He's rebuking me. He's correcting me. And the very thing that's stopping up my path from prosperity, the very thing that's pushing back on me and keeping me from prospering is the very love of God in training me so that I wouldn't depart. And yet when I lose sight of that, what am I doing? I'm fainting. I've lost heart. Do you ever lose heart? See, the very words of Hebrews 12 was designed to help the Jewish people who wanted to go back to the prosperous days of Jerusalem and Moses and and give give up all the pain they were experiencing. And what are the warnings of Hebrews? You don't want to go back there. There's nothing but destruction there. Right? Press on to the mark of God. Remember the exhortation. God is dealing with His children as sons, and every son gets chastening for the Lord. What was the chastening? Of Asaph, he wasn't prospering. And the very correction he needed is thinking that his behavior produced that. See, the problem's not the prosperity. The problem is Asaph's envy of the wicked. And sometimes we're not only envious of the wicked's prosperity, we're envious of the Lord's people's prosperity. And he gives that too. Oh, how we need the rescuing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Asaph understands in the sanctuary, therein, God's rescuing grace comes through understanding. God's rescuing grace comes through chastisement. As God knows our days, He gives attention to our days, and that attention is in part a father that's training his son, that he loves and that he delights in. You ever despise your father's training? Now, Hebrews says, as fathers, we verily chasten our children for our own pleasure sometimes. What's God after? He's after the very thing that Asaph is seeking. Holiness. Why are they at odds? If God is training Asaph that he'll be a partaker of his holiness, and Asaph is on the pathway of holiness, what's the problem? It's the prosperity he's after in his holy behavior. That's why he's doing it. So God hedges his way, stops him up. Like Balaam was stopped up on his way, the madness of the prophet, the dumbass spoke to him. And the very thing that the donkey was doing in turning aside was preserving Balaam's life from the angel who had a sword in his hand. How often is God preserving our very spiritual life and the dangers that we are succumbed to through his chastening hand and diverting us off the path And all the time, we're smiting the donkey in the top of the head. Truly, God is good to heritage. 
Is he not? Number three. Verse 24, Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Asaph is going to be rescued through understanding, through chastening, and through guidance. How long is God going to guide his children? Till glory. So God rescues him with his hand and puts him in the pathway again to guidance. If you don't want the guidance of God, you don't want the glory. Some people want the glory. Say, yeah, I'm all for glory. Just don't tell me anything about living. You don't want the glory. Because the God that guides is God's glory that He's bringing us to. See, the reason you don't like the guidance is because you don't like the God who is the guide. The guide is someone that shows the way to others. Why would you reject the guidance of God? Because you think you can do it better. Oh, how arrogant we are as sinners. The infinite knowledge and wisdom of God. And we think we can chart our pathway better than God. And we reject Him as our guide. Asaph was about to do that. and just, I'm, I'm turning aside. God graciously came in and grabbed him and brought him back to guidance, to his senses. Overcame his foolish, beast-like tendencies that we all have. God is our guide. If we want the glory, we want the guidance because God leads His dear children along, doesn't He? After the guidance is over, which is after our lives, we get glory because God graciously has put us on the pathway of glory. He is our guide. Do you come under the guidance of God? Well, I hear a few sermons. That's not the question. Have you come under lordship? Talking to Brother Gunnar this week, and we were talking about how the word doulos in the New Testament, servant means slave. Are you a slave of King Jesus? Boy, it's the best slavery you could ever experience. The freedom of being a slave of Jesus. Why would you not? Oh, because you don't want to. That's your problem. No problem with God. No problem with Jesus. It's a problem with your own affections and your own will. Oh, that God would open our eyes to see the goodness of His guidance. How good is God to Israel? How good is God to you? He's brought you under His guidance. Jesus said in John 10, 26, You believe not because you're not of my sheep. He didn't say, You're not my sheep because you don't believe. That's a massive statement, isn't it? The reason you don't believe, you don't belong to me. My sheep which belong to me, they hear my voice. That's a present active participle. They are hearing his voice. How are they hearing it? Through the gospel. Because they've been effectually called and drawn to Christ through the gospel. They hear the voice of Christ in the gospel. Why? Because he knows them. He has a covenant relationship, not because they know Him, He knows them. And they follow me, present, active, participle. They are following me. They're under His guidance. How do you know you're the sheep of God and you've been effectually called? Because of some experience you had 20 years ago? You come under the guidance of King Jesus as the good shepherd. Do you think He's not good? 
But functionally, we live that way sometimes, don't we? We don't do what he says. No, all the people under King Jesus' guidance are sinful sheep. How patient, how kind, how gracious. He knows them and so they keep following. Why? Because he comes in with understanding. He comes with his right hand. He comes with chastening. He comes with his guidance to bring us back to the guidance of God. How good is that for sinners? And I give them eternal life. I'm giving it to them, not just in the future, but right now. And they shall never perish, which means they shall never stop believing and following. Why? Because Jesus is a sovereign king. And just like Asa, whose foot almost slipped, the shepherd came and rescued. He's like a shepherd sitting on a high mountain cliff looking over his sheep. And one of the wolves come. He's coming in. In his own timing, he'll come and he'll rescue. And he brings us back to his guidance. So the question for you that are here, are you under his guidance? Are you a follower of the Lamb? Have you arisen, been baptized, and a follower of Jesus Christ? Then you're not a follower until you take the first step of obedience and come to Christ. You have the deep assurance that he'll never let you go. He'll never cast you out. And then lastly, we see in verse 26, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but thee, and there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee? My flesh and my heart faileth. It is failing. It may fail. I'm being plagued. I'm being chastened. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God rescues Asaph through strength, through strength. Asaph now has come to an understanding in the sanctuary of God. He's been chastened, rescued by God's right hand. He's come under, back under the guidance of God, and now he's strengthened. What is this strength for, and how did Asaph experience it? What is this strength for? Verse 27, Because, lo, behold, Lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. What almost happened to Asaph? He almost went a-whoring from God. That's adultery, idolatry, harlotry. What is adultery? It's when you have a love affair with a person that's not your spouse. It's when you have a love affair with a God that's not the true God. So this strength keeps Asaph from perishing or going whoring after other gods. That's by his own word. Do you see it? We need this strength, beloved. And God brings it to His children. How many times would you have gone? How many times would you have slept? How many times would you have departed from the fold, and God was faithful to come back, bring you to His guidance, and strengthen you. For what purpose? That you wouldn't go far from God. Because what happens if you're far from God and you stay far from Him? What happens if you go whoring after God and you stay there? You perish and you're destroyed forever. 
This is the strength of the Spirit and the inner man that He's going to give His children. That's the reason for the strength. Asaph lost this strength by his own actions, his own sin, but God graciously rescues in bringing back the strength. Now, how did he experience this strength and what was it like? Verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but thee, and there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee? God is the strength of my heart. <clears throat> beside thee is an echo of Exodus 23, 20 verse 3, where God says, Thou shalt have no gods before me. Before me, above me, in front of me, beside me, behind me. No gods. To have a God beside God is to have a rivalry with God. A rivalry is someone in competition to be superior in a field of activity like athletics, in-state rivalries, right? Those are fun. There is a competition for the superiority in the field of activity called football, basketball, whatever it is. What is the field of activity that God will have no rivals? For which when we see that, we're strengthened. He will have no rivals to the supremacy of being satisfied by anything other than God. How do you know that? Who do I have in heaven beside thee? And there's nobody on earth that I want who could possibly satisfy me like you, God. God is the strength of my what? Heart. Do you see it with your own eyes? To be strengthened in your heart is to have no rivals to the supremacy of God, which means you understand God is the satisfier. Now here's the good news. God's rescuing grace keeps bringing us back to that because Asaph had a moment when what was the satisfier? What was the rival to God? What had supremacy? It was prosperity. It's so dangerous. Don't take it lightly. It was the blessing. It was whatever he put in the blank that my behavior is to get for me. That was a rival. He was going far from God. God graciously brings him back. And gives him strength in his heart. What is that strength? There's no one like you. There's no one that can do for me what you do to my soul. No one. Do you believe that? You say, well, I'm, I didn't experience it this way. Do you, do you believe that? We don't always experience that. Asaph didn't experience it. See? That's how we know that Satan was wrong concerning Job and the prosperity gospel. The reason he behaves so well, God, is because you prosper the man. He's just a prosperity gospel kind of guy. And God says in Job 42, He says God blessed Job with greater stuff than He did before the calamity. So God uses that word blessing in terms of more children, more oxen, more asses, more camels, more servants. What we need to ask is, what was the period of time between chapter 1 and chapter 42? What are we going to call that? What is proof that Job did not succumb to the prosperity gospel? Because when it was all taken away, all of it, all of it, what did he do? He blessed God. That's how you know Job, sinner. Job, sinful man, redeemed, did not give way 
to Satan's prosperity gospel. Because when God took it away, what did he say? He said, I'm satisfied with God. How do we know that? Because he said, naked came I into the world, naked shall I return thither. You know this, I've said it before. What did Paul say in 1 Timothy chapter 6? We brought nothing into the world, we shall take nothing when we leave. Those are parallel statements. Job then says, blessed be the name of the Lord. What does Paul say? Therefore be content with such things as you have. Job's expression of blessing is an expression of his being satisfied with God and being content even though God slew him. He slew him. What did Job say? Whom do I have in heaven but thee? There's none on earth I desire beside thee. You've slain me. You've taken it all. God be blessed. That's your strength. That's our strength. And the good news is that although Asaph didn't have this strength, when he struggled with God's goodness, and you and I at times don't have this strength, God brought it to him. How? He went to church. He understood. He was chastened. He was brought under the guidance of God, and then he was strengthened. And what's the upshot? Verse 28. But it is good for me to draw near to God. All this is the means of drawing near to God. All these ways that Asaph is unpacking for us is drawing near to God. Truly God is good to Israel, verse 1. It is good for me to draw near to God. To those that have a clean heart, what's the purpose of a clean heart? Drawing near to God. Because the blessing of the service is the God of the service. And whatever else out of that is just goodness of God. He's the main event. He is the gospel. He is the prosperity. He is the priority. He is the supremacy. He is the superiority. It is good for me to draw near to God. That's what a pure heart's for. I have put my trust in the Lord. That's how purity comes. And what is trust? He treasures. He acknowledges. He loves the God that is so gracious and so rescuing that I may declare, show forth all thy works. So out of this heart prosperity, whether Asaph has it materially or he doesn't, when he's drawing near to God, trusting God, then he's showing forth the praises of God, for which Peter says, that is our purpose as a church, to show forth the excellencies of the God that called you out of the darkness of sin and into the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. Have your feet almost slipped? Am I talking to someone this morning that has departed or thinking of a departure? May God so rescue us daily as we seek to understand. We understand He chastens us for our good. We come again and again to the guidance of God and through that God gives us strength to draw nigh. Let's pray. Father, You're a great God. And your rescuing grace is amazing and wonderful, Lord, and undeserving. You freely come to us when we are not acting right or behaving well. And we are at times turning from you in our hearts and minds, even though at times our bodies may be in the right place. Father, forgive us for our prosperity gospel. 
Forgive us when we make the blessing the main event and how indeed, truly, you bless us. Forgive us when our aim is the prosperity or the comfort or the convenience or something that we have put in the blank. And Lord, help us to remember to draw nigh to you is a great privilege, a great honor and grace and mercy. And through being close to you, we can experience the peace and the contentment and the joy that gives us strength when the devil comes and offers us a prosperity gospel. We not only recognize the more blatant version, but anything that tries to put any other God beside you. So Lord, we know our need for your help. We need you. We need your grace. And we thank you in Jesus Christ that you give more grace. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.